0: Uh, good afternoon. We're going we're to start, but let me encourage anybody who hasn't grabbed lunch to go ahead and grab a sandwich and have a seat, uh, and certainly don't let the uh, conversation, the discussion uh, defer, uh, deter you from eating. Uh, I am Mark Calabria, Director of Financial Regulation at the Cato Institute, and I'm going to be our moderator on our little discussion today. Uh, let me start it with saying that I think the conventional wisdom really suggests that our financial crisis, the sovereign debt crisis in Europe, were driven by essentially risky assets. Uh, I would make the argument, and I think we're going to touch on this today, that they were instead driven by massive leverage behind what were generally, at least pre-crisis, considered safe assets. Uh, Here in the United States, things like Fannie Mae debts, things like AAA mortgage-backed securities, and of course in Europe, things like Italian, Greek sovereign debt that were treated by regulators as essentially being risk-free. You compare these assets to something like small business lending, which actually does display pretty high levels of loss, you know, you're going to see that it was really the safest assets essentially treated by the system as such that gave a lot of disruption. So, of course, the question would be, if these assets were so safe, why are we in such a mess? Uh, and I think the primary answer is that our system of bank regulation, particularly our capital system, done with the Basel Accords, really encouraged banks to load up on these particular assets, but to also do so at very, very high levels of leverage to, again, use the example of, say, you could have a very risky small business loan, but if there's sufficient capital against that loan, there aren't really systemic implications from that. There isn't a risk to the overall system. Whereas you can have very large levels of sovereign debt, and in the EU, there was almost no requirement to have any capital against them. So only very small losses uh, on these instruments could cause very systemic implications. Uh, And these are many of the issues we're going to touch on. Uh, Most of the discussion is going to flow from a paper published by one of our outside scholars, Kevin Dowd, called Capital Inadequacies. There were copies of the paper coming uh, on the front. Uh, if, you, if the copies are gone, we're happy to get you a copy later. Uh, but again, Kevin Dowd is gonna be presenting from that paper and let me give you a little bit of Kevin's background. Currently, Kevin is a visiting professor at the Cass Business School's Pension Institute at the City University of London. Kevin has written extensively on the history in theory of free banking, central banking, financial regulation, and Monetary Systems. He's published a number of books, uh, including Private Money, uh, including Competition in Finance. He is also the co-author with Martin Hutchinson of Alchemists of Loss, How Modern Finance and Government Intervention Crash the Financial System. I can say from having read a number of books on the financial crisis, and I've actually put together a reading list for anybody who's interested, I can say that Alchemists of Loss ranks as one of the most comprehensive and accurate of the financial crisis. I'd actually go as far to say if you were to read only one book on the financial crisis, Alchemists of Loss would truly be the one I would suggest you start with. Uh, Lastly, but perhaps most importantly, Kevin is also an adjunct scholar at the KDU Institute. Uh, Kevin's going to be joined for a few remarks by Pierre Kurowski, who in addition to his service as an executive director at the World Bank, has written extensively on bank regulation and capital regulation. And with that, I'm going to turn it over to Kevin.
1: Thank you. you.
2: Well, good afternoon, everybody, and thank you, Mark. Um, It's very good of you to turn up here uh, to, to, to join our discussion. I'd like to say it's a great honor I never, ever imagined myself giving a talk on Capitol Hill, but it's it's very flattering and very I feel very honoured. I also would like to thank Mark and my friends at Cato for organising this. Um, capital regulation, I mean, if ever there was a subject that would put you to sleep, this is it. It's But actually, I think one has to peer through all the, the complexity, et cetera, et cetera, to see the essence of it, which is actually quite simple. So let me... Let me just give some very brief comments, and I hope you'll thank me for not dragging you through that paper. It is a rather complicated mess, and we'd be here all day. So let me just keep things to the level I understand. What, what's the purpose of capital? Uh, the purpose of capital is to provide a buffer against possible loss. So imagine the following. You have a bank. The bank has $1 in assets. That, that asset can go up and down. It can make a profit, take a loss. Against that asset, you have claims. The claims consist of equity or capital and deposits. So imagine a situation where you have uh, 10 cents in equity, 90 cents in deposits, a 10% capital ratio. And what you're saying is that, that your bank, your, your asset uh, portfolio, can take a loss of up to 10%, and you still have enough left over to pay off your depositors in full. So the bottom line, capital is a cushion. The bigger the cushion, the safer the bank, the idea being to protect depositors. Now, um, the purpose of capital regulation is, in essence, to put a floor under the capital ratio. And the, the premise from which one starts is that one believes that there's a capital adequacy problem, that the banks are too weak, or they might become too weak. So because of this, some smart regulator Contradiction in terms, if ever there was one. Uh, Pardon me. We we decide that we wish to impose minimum capital requirements to assure ourselves that the individual banks and therefore the banking system as a whole is safe and sound. So that's the premise. And uh, if one looks at the history of this, that the Basel system dates back to the 1970s, basically, when it became apparent to the major central banks of the world, that they really needed to coordinate uh, many of the things that they did. So the net result of this was that a committee was set up at the Bank for International Settlements in Basel, which is the Central Bankers' Central Bank or the Central Bankers' Club, and they decided that they would coordinate to, in effect, produce an international treaty of bank capital regulation. Eventually, this thing came out in 1988—the so-called Basel Accord, which we now call Basel I. Now, it, over the next few years, it became apparent that Basel I wasn't really working very well, and we needed a, a major new overhaul. So, after many years of tortuous negotiations, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, a new Basel Accord, Basel II, was agreed in the early years of the millennium, and Basel. Basel was implemented by European banks shortly before the crisis hit. When the crisis hit, Bas- uh, Basel II had still not yet been adopted by the United States. In retrospect, a very smart move, A, because it saved the United States the bother, and B, because Basel II wasn't nearly as good as Basel I, which was itself terrible. Anyway, the way to think of it is this. imagine that you have individual ships and we sign off all the ships as seaworthy and this fleet of titanics goes off and sinks when the first storm hits that's essentially what happened prior to 2007 all the banks the major banks were more than adequately capitalized by Basel and then the banking system crashed so clearly it's not the most successful record the the response of the regulators has been essentially more of the same but let's do it in a hurry and let's do it in, an even, in a panic. So as of early last year, if one thinks of, uh, let's say, spring 2010, there were so many position papers, etc., etc., coming out from all over the place that nobody could possibly even read them all, and people started to joke about Basel III. There was such an avalanche of regulatory material. But then the joke was on the jokers, because in the, in the fall of last year, it was Basel III, in essence, Basel III is just more gobbledygook. They've they've patched up a few problems. Uh, okay, so you can say yes in, in certain respects, uh, there are slight improvements in the system, but bottom line is, it's not going to work. It cannot possibly work. And you know, we can have Basel three, four, five, and six. It will never work because the underlying process that generates these rules is so f- fundamentally flawed, and one can. You know, one could spend all day talking about this, but the take-home message is it it will not work. It's never worked, and it won't work. So don't try and fix it. You need to think outside that particular box. Yes, there are problems with the banking system, but we need to think elsewhere. Now, there are many... um... Oh, yeah. So basically, that's the key message. It's a complete failure, and we need to think about other ways of strengthening the banks. OK, so what's wrong with it? Well, um, yeah. I've, I've picked on a couple of the weaknesses, but, but two others that I, I didn't mention, but I'd just like to, to, to plant the thought, really. Um, the whole idea here is that you can have a, a, a risk management standard. OK? Now I would suggest to you that is a contradiction in terms. that if you, if you want market stability, you have to have contrarianism. When some people want to sell, you want other people to buy. If you impose a regulatory standard that says that under certain circumstances, you should sell your positions, and if everybody does that, you've made the system more unstable than it already was. So the notion of a regulatory standard in risk management is a contradiction in terms. In addition, you have to bear in mind the possibility that the rules are flawed, which means that any flaw in the rules is transmitted to everybody. We're not talking about an individual bank with a flawed risk management policy. We're talking about all of them. So the system is inherently destabilizing. And that's before we've even begun to talk about the individual rules. So leaving that aside, two problems I'd like to focus on here. First off, that many of the rules are senseless. They they come out of committees that uh, sign off on these things. Often these people are jet-lagged, stressed, working all through the night, bad-tempered and all this. The rules get signed off, and individually the regulators will not own up. You know, they signed it, but it's not my fault. And I would would ask you, any time you meet a bank regulator, ask them bluntly, do you think these rules work? If they say yes, well, what about the fact that the banking system's crashed. And if they say no, which they will, then what on earth were you doing? And I, I know myself, I, at Nottingham, I was host uh, to a very senior uh, Bank of England, Basel, regulator. And as I was taking her to drop her off at the railway station, I said, oh, it's dead easy to sort all this stuff out. This was about seven or eight years. I said, all you do is get rid of all the regulation and you make the bankers personally liable. And she says, yeah, that would work. You but we can't do that because politically it's not acceptable. So you try it. See if anybody individually, one-to-one, takes responsibility, and they won't. Anyway, these senseless rules. I'll just give you one example. Zero weight on sovereigns. The original Basel Accord basically took an asset, you classify it, and you give it a weight. Uh, So a commercial loan, 100% weight, a sovereign... OECD sovereign, zero weight. Now, that rule was there right from the word go, and it's still in there. Look at Greek government debt, for example. Greece is an OECD country. Obviously, we all know that Greek debt is default free. So what does this rule do? It encourages the banks to go into the zero-weighted positions, which were essentially sovereigns. That is a key driver behind the Eurozone crisis. So now the European banks are ripping themselves to bits because they're so exposed to sovereigns that are going belly up. A direct consequence of Basel. Anyway, this other um, weakness, which I I, I cannot begin to get across to you how how important this is and and how profound it is, The, the Basel rules are infinitely gameable. Now, the bottom line is this, that the bank regulators don't understand banking. So, bless them, the legislators certainly don't. And so you have a system designed by people who really don't know what they're doing up against an industry which is making massive profits by gaming this system. So all the big specialists, the rocket scientists, etc., they're on the other side. They're on the dark side. Doing all this dark side financing and gaming this system and making themselves immensely wealthy doing it. And you know what? If the banking system crashes, so what? We'll just get a bailout. And they were right. And that's happened, happened, and is happening, will happen again. They're busy gaming the system now like crazy. And they're in the expectation, a confident expectation, they will be bailed out and they can then retire you know, the Caribbean island or whatever it is, it's not their problem. But I just want to give you some illustrations of this gameability, infinite gameability. Um, One of them is regulatory arbitrage. This takes many forms, but I'll I'll give you a real-world example. A colleague of mine, working for a big British bank 10 years ago, they had a very big portfolio of commercial bonds. This attracted an 8% capital ratio. We don't really want 8% capital ratio. We want to reduce it because then we can declare big profits, bonuses, etc., etc. So my friend came up with a wonderful scam, and it used a kind of smoke and mirrors uh, thing, all sorts of crisscrossing swaps, etc., etc. The bottom line is he got that bond portfolio reclassified as a thing called a credit derivative, which we all know is very, very safe. The credit derivative attracted a capital ratio of 0.5%. So these guys made an overnight profit. You know, that reduction in capital requirement translates as profit. So 15 16th reduction. They made a huge profit from this. It was widely copied, and my friend was left wondering why the banking system took so long to collapse afterwards. So... um, And that, you know, as I say, was widely copied, and that's just an example of these things. Of course, what it meant was that that profit was paid off in bonuses and dividends and so on, and so the bank is operating on a terrible uh, sliver of nothing. And amongst other things, in this scam, there was some insurance taken out on AIG, you see, which, of course, turned out to be worthless when we really needed it. Now, the more recent Basel rules go beyond... Sorry, (laughs) the more recent Basel rules go beyond uh, these fixed-risk weights to to allow banks to use their own risk models. Now, at some level, this should strike you as astonishing because it's like, you know, the poachers setting the rules. This was said to be more sophisticated because the the fixed-risk weight is basically senseless. So what we're now allowing, uh, have done for quite a long time, the bank's risk models to be used to determine what their regulatory charges should be. So it's like paying your own tax. You you decide, no, I prefer the low tax regime, if you don't mind. And you fiddle your risk model to produce a low risk number. It's dead easy to do. It's trivially easy to do. And in fact, the banks are very uh, wedded to a risk measure known as the value at risk, which is basically hopeless. Well, this tells you uh, what you could lose on 19... The most you can lose on 19 good days out of 20, but it doesn't tell you anything about what you might lose on that other day when you could go belly up. So it's a perfect risk measure if you just want low-risk numbers. And who cares about the real risks? Nobody. So you can imagine the gameability of this. And, of course, what you have in credit risk models with the real flavor of the month in Basel II, this allowed you to get, you know, AAA ratings on toxic nonsense etc etc the rating agencies are utterly useless a because they don't know what they're doing and b because they're just as conflicted as the banks themselves i just want to give you one example of secu- the last example securitization you need to understand that the driving factor behind securitization is basel you know securitization is a way in which we can reduce our regulatory charges and I'm not saying all securitization is bad, but the vast mass of it is. I'd also put to you that there is no socially useful purpose to credit derivatives. Just a thought, but, you know, credit derivatives also driven by this system, but I've talked here about CDOs, collateralized debt obligations. Let me, let me explain how this works. You have a portfolio of toxic rubbish, just trash, subprime whatever you like. It's you know very very poor credit rating and quite rightly so what you want to do is get it a triple you know a much higher credit rating so what you do is you take that portfolio you sell it to a special purpose vehicle that you set up for that purpose that special purpose vehicle issues claims against that portfolio which are tranched that means they differ in seniority there's a senior uh, claim and a junior claim now the way, you know, particularly if you have a, a, a pretty useless risk uh, diversification model, and they are all pretty useless, the bottom line is, to give you kind of real-world numbers, I can get the top, the most senior, 80%, a, a, a tranche, a AAA rating. So I've gone from something that is basically you know, rubbish rating to 80% of it being AAA, equivalent to U.S. government debt. And then, I, OK, I'm still left with that sliver of 20%, of, you know, which is basically trash. So I, I securitize it again and again and again and again. And each time I do it, I'm basically washing my dirty laundry and converting kind of lead into gold in an alchemical process, which basically leaves the lead exactly as it was. There's no changes in risk or anything like this. But you've, you've got a situation where you can then achieve the benefits of high credit ratings, which you can then pass off to unsuspecting investors, you know, pension funds and so on. And also, because you've now got AAA ratings, means that you attract a low capital charge, so everybody's happy. Anyway, I think, uh, I hope I persuaded you at least to consider the possibility that this system is broke beyond fixing. And I think the question we should be asking is... What else do we do to fix the banking system? And we should recognize that this is never, ever going to work. So thank you.
1: I would like to take this around, but keep it on this page, where it's folded, because that's the page I'm going to use to make you better regulators in 32nd and the whole Basel committee. Uh. In 1999, in an op-ed I wrote, the possible Big Bang that scares me the most is the one that could happen the day those genius bank regulators in Basel playing gods managed to introduce a systemic error in the financial system which will cause its collapse. And then 2002 to 2004, I was an executive director at the World Bank, and with formal statements, with interventions, written statements at the board and everything, I did whatever I could to stop Basel. No chance, had no luck. If I had argued that Basel was sort of 15 degrees off, they would have listened to me. But since I held that they were totally wrong, 180 degrees wrong, I had to be silenced. And, and that is why I so much sincerely appreciate the uh, possibility to stay here and, and discuss a paper that does not hold a lot back on, on, on criticism of, of the Basel regulation and of the jesters, they're called. And I thank Cato and Mark for, for this opportunity. Uh, the horrendous crisis that now has mostly affected the United States and Europe, and is only beginning to affect the rest of the world, was caused, as I said, primarily by the bank regulators. This has not yet been understood because the crisis has been mislabeled as one resulting from excessive risk-taking. A crisis which results 99% from excessive bank exposures to AAA-rated securities, Backed with about the safest assets, mortgages and houses, located in about the safest country, United States, and of loans to sovereigns, which were deemed worthy borrowers by the credit rating agencies and bank regulators alike, must in all logic only be a crisis resulting from an excessive regulatory risk adverseness. It's completely the other way around. The regulators, innocently probably, as I hope, with great hubris, thinking they could do us all a favor acting like risk managers for the world and make our banks super safe, produced incentives which caused the banks to generate dangerously excessive exposures to what was ex ante, officially perceived as not risky, while at the same time equally dangerous through Truly, odious discrimination hindered the banks to attend the credit needs of the risky, the small business and entrepreneurs, some of our most important job creators. These regulations, in fact, signified a non-transparent, huge capital controls that completely distorted the financial markets. That extreme risk-adverseness was embedded in the capital requirement for banks as adjusted by risk weights, based on the ex ante risk of default of borrowers. Their effect was to shoot up into the stratosphere the returns on bank equity when banks were involved with anything officially perceived as not risky, and consequently, because of the higher opportunity cost of capital, to also make bank credit much more expensive and harder to get for those officially perceived as risky. An example, if a bank makes a 1% risk-adjusted return after taking away what he thinks is gonna be the risk and its cost on a loan to a small business and is allowed to leverage only 12 times, then the banker will get a return on the equity of 12% a year. Nothing to write home about, nothing to pay big bonuses on, nothing to grow too big to fail on. Now, if a bank makes exactly that same 1% of risk-adjusted return lending to Greece, and is then allowed to leverage over more than 60 times, which was the fact for Greece for the last decade, then that bank could make a 60%, more than 60% return a year. Definitely something to write home about something to pay big bonuses on, and something to grow too big to fail on. The paper here presented uh, includes some minor impositions, which do not really take away one Yoda from its quality. And with one exception, I won't spend a minute on it, because the message I want to get through is that no matter how bad the Basel mistakes are described to be in the paper, they are, unfortunately, so much worse. The slight imprecision that I want to make a comment on is that although it is formally correct to state that Basel II had still not been implemented in the United States when the financial crisis struck, in reality many banks had, de facto, since mid-2004 already been acting as if it had been implemented. As you can understand, bankers do not leave for tomorrow the purchase of securities they know will have a higher demand because of a change in regulations and therefore command higher prices. Also, in April 2004, the Securities Exchange Commission here in the US approved new capital requirements, favoring, again, what they officially perceived as not risky for broker dealers and investment banks. And it did so stating explicitly that's the, it says there that the computation should be prepared in a form that is consistent with the Basel standards. So Basel has hit the US and US has signed off on Basel II in June 2042. And I want to make a brief inventory of some of the principal misguided thinking processes that caused this basal flaw. I can classify this in conceptual, implementation, and philosophical. I'm going to forget about this part. First, where do all major bank crises occur? Please, go to this table. Here's where you're going to be better regulators. We have a quadrangle here. These are the bank loans. They could be ex ante perceived as not risky, ex ante perceived as risky, ex ante not risky, ex ante risky. And exposed, they could turn out to be not risky, but they also could turn up to be the opposite. Now, in which of these four quadrangles is a systemic bank crisis possible? In the quadrangle of lending to the not risky that turn out to be not risky? Of course not. All is expected. In the quadrangle of lending to those perceived as risky but turn out to be not risky? Of course not. Pleasant surprise. I gave a loan to a risky entrepreneur, he paid me back, pleasant surprise, no problem. In the ex ante, perceived as risky, that turned out to be risky, yes. But I knew they were risky, I expected it, and priced it. The only place where a systemic banking crisis can occur is in the quadrangle, that is, what is ex ante, perceived as not risky, but exposed, turns out to be risky. The result, unpleasant surprise. And this little thing, the regulator just completely ignored, that that the only thing that they had to worry about was this quadrangle. They needed to worry about things like the possibility of the credit ratings and the banker's risk models being incorrect. Instead, they bet the house. The whole regulatory system on the credit ratings and the risk models of the banks being correct. If you're a regulator at home at night, you know, what's going to happen? Can you think about if the credit ratings are doing wrong and the risk models are wrong? That's what you would think. No. They bet the whole system on this always being correct. So this pushed the system into that. Then there's a big implementation mistake the doubling up of the perceived risk of default. The perceived risk of default of a borrower is already cleared for in the markets and by the banks through interest rates, they charge the borrowers, amounts, they lend out, and maturity of loans. There's a couple of things more, securities and things like that, but it's already based there. Think that as the numerator. But then came the regulators and used exactly the same perceived risk of default to also alter the capital requirements. Think of that as the denominator. And this really made the whole thing explode completely for what is perceived as risky, as not risky. And they also committed another mistake. And I think that the question is more than enough to explain it. What is more important, the credit ratings or how bankers react to these? Try to try to get hold of it. That a credit rating says, not risky, hmm? that's great. That's no problem. That a banker goes excessively and believes that excessively, that is the problem. The problem is not really credit ratings but themselves, but what the bankers do with the credit ratings, which is one of the big problems that still remain to be solved. And there was a big philosophical mistake also. There was no purpose for the banks. Any regulator should have to be clear about the purpose of banks before regulating. Otherwise, it's like regulating the constructions material of a road without considering From where it comes, to where it goes, and through who travels on it. In the case of the current Basel bank regulations, believe it or not, there is not one single word to be found about the purpose of our banks. There is not one single word in the regulations that state the banks are, the purpose of the banks is this. And since they had no purpose established, well that's why easily they could have uh, have gone. If they had, for instance, said that the banks should be efficient capital allocators, there's no way you can justify a system like this. And the way they picked the risk, who gave the regulators the right to decide, on their own, petit comité, a little group, that the risk of default of the borrowers was the sine qua non. Risk our banks needed to be covered against? In this case, by basing the capital requirements on it. Are safe banks in an unsafe economy of any use? What, for instance, of an alternative? Not that I'm suggesting, but I'm just putting it out there so you understand. What about capital requirement for banks based on the potential of job creation for our youth ratings? They, 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 you suddenly start hearing a purpose of the whole thing that is completely different from this purposeless capital requirement based on f- default risk. Let me conclude by stating that for a foreigner like me, who is very appreciative of the role the U.S. plays in the world economy, I find it very worrisome un-American in the land of the brave to foster an unnatural risk-adverseness and discriminate so much against those perceived as risky, as well as very worrisome un-American, even communistic, in the home of the free, to require the banks to hold much more capital when lending to its citizens than when lending to its government. God make us daring is a prayer that can be heard in many Western world churches since risk-taking is the oxygen of any development. Don't let the small fears in the Basel Committee stall us. Thank you. Uh,
0: Kevin, Pierre, thank you. I wanna clarify, uh, I think, a couple of points that would that are worth bearing on and thinking about. It, and first of all, it's a very basic, simple, I mean, you read the press accounts about the Basel capital standards or capital in general, and it's always presented as, we need more capital in the system. And a lot of the discussion today has focused not simply on the level of capital, but more importantly, on the relative amounts of capital. For instance, if you read in the newspaper and it says something like, oh, well, we're gonna go from eight to 10%. And there's always this like phrase afterwards, risk adjusted. Well, that often means that they're talking a whole lot less. For instance, uh, a bank can hold nothing but mortgages and they'll tell you it's an 8% risk adjusted capital. Well, in real terms, that means it's only 4%, not 8%. So again, it's important to look past that. And it's also important to keep in mind that as the overall risk-adjusted capital levels are raised, it actually makes it more attractive for banks to continue to load up on the lower risk. So if we raise the overall capital standards without changing the relative risk, you will actually incentivize banks to hold more sovereigns, for instance. Uh, And one of the things that's being talked about under Basel III are what are called liquidity requirements. So the direction of Basel III is to actually encourage banks to hold – even larger amounts of sovereigns, and I know that Pierre touched on this at the end, and I think this is an incredibly important point outside of financial stability, which is macroeconomic growth. And my point with this is that the varying risk weights within Basel essentially set the relative cost of lending to various sectors of the economy. And we, are, we have within Basel II, Basel I, and Basel III made the decision that we will favor certain sectors of the economy over others. Now, my own personal opinion is we have favored sectors of the economy that are ultimately less productive than other sectors of the economy. And we have discouraged things like small business lending to the benefit of lending to running up house prices via the mortgage market or lending to sovereigns. And these things ultimately come at real cost to growth to the economy by reducing productivity.
2: Well, I couldn't agree more with, with these comments. Uh, the whole idea of fixed risk weights is just wrong on principle. That The true risk of a position depends on what else goes with it. You know, the whole idea that you can say that has a risk weight of whatever is fixed is completely wrong. Now, I think it's, it is personally quite obscene, the fact that sovereigns get zero weights, which means huge inducement to buy government debt as Mark, as you say, when when the new Basel III in effect involves a doubling of risk-weighted capital requirements. That doubles the subsidy towards holding government debt. Yeah, so exactly, that's exactly what we need in Europe now, is an even bigger inducement to hold Greek government debt at at, at the cost of the the, commercial sector and and far worthier uh, borrowers and so forth. But I'd go further i say the whole idea of a risk-weighted, risk-weighted capital is ultimately meaningless because it's so gameable. You, know, you can have a, a, a tiny sliver of capital and game it suitably, and you've got a huge risk-weighted capital requirement because everything that matters has got a zero weight. So it's utterly meaningless. And I think one of the few things that the Basel got right is the emphasis on overall ratios. Take... You know, if you take a common-sense equity notion, hard equity, and you take the ratio of that to assets properly measured, that's just the old-fashioned approach to doing it. It's not perfect, but it's better than anything else, except getting rid of capital regulation altogether. And I think, really, we we should really recognize that there's too many unintended consequences. For example, the doubling of risk weights, pushing pushing us even more into, into government debt, et cetera, et cetera. We, we really need to recognize that system cannot be fixed, and we should really be thinking, what do we do to strengthen our banks? And a hint, what about looking at the policies that are making banks weaker, like deposit insurance, too big to fail, et cetera, et cetera?
0: Uh, and I want to clarify in a, another example, and I'll turn right over to, to a second here. Uh, Kevin talked about credit default swaps, and, and I know as somebody who engages in conversations, discussions about the financial crisis quite regularly, always is brought up that, you know, here are all these credit default swaps. That's why we had the bailout AIG. These are bad things, and they should be banned. Uh, And I'll say as an aside, you know, I really encourage you. Jillian Tett's book, Fool's Gold, is a great discussion of sort of the the genesis of credit default swaps. And what the genesis of credit default swaps are, J.P. Morgan figured out that if they could get the bank regulators, and in this case it was the New York Fed signed off on – if you hold this loan let 's say it 's a GM bond, and you buy a credit default swap against that GM bond, we will greatly let you lower your capital standards in the vast majority of credit default swaps are held by banks solely for the purposes of lowering their capital standards so it 's fair to say that if it was not for Basel I and Basel II, much of the credit default swap market would have never simply existed That's correct. I'm- and- I'm
2: just saying, so the credit derivatives in general would, would not have been in-
1: yeah, think of it like this if the risk models of the banks were perfectly correct credit ratings perfectly correct everything will all the loans would be perfectly priced and actually there would be no need of capital at all banks could have zero capital there's no need capital is there to be there for precisely the moments when they are not correct so, so, so we, the, as a regulator, started acting like a banker instead of a being a regulator. He went outside his scope. And then I want to uh, tell you very briefly following, this three months ago, something like that, I had a chance to speak with Alan Greenspan after he had mentioned that he would have liked to know what the interest rate on mortgage would be right now were it not for all the subsidies to house financing and mortgages. And I asked him, would you not like to know what would be the real interest rate on US public debt if it had not been for all this regulatory bias in favor of the government borrowings? And he paled and said, well, yeah, that's basically the same. At this moment, you don't know here in the States, you're flying without instruments. You don't know what is the underlying rate of government debt because that rate includes all these subsidies, real communistic subsidies in my mind, in favor of government borrowers, borrowing, and against small businessmen and citizens. The citizen, if a bank gives a loan to the government, zero capital. If a bank gives a loan to the citizen, 8%. If a bank gives a loan to a solindra. capital. If the bank gives a loan to the government so that it gives a Solinda loan, 0%. It's lunacy what's going on.